Hi everyone, welcome to today's episode of Synthesis Spotlight. I'm Lucy and I am here today with Professor Sarah Richardson. She is a professor of the history of science and women, gender, and sexuality at Harvard University, and her work focuses on the sciences of gender, sex, sexuality, and reproduction. She is also founder and director of the Gender Sci Lab, a research team dedicated to the intersectional study of gender and sex in the biological sciences. And we are so fortunate to have her on the podcast today. So thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Great. So to begin, as a current history of science student myself, I am always curious, how did you become interested in the history of science? I started by being fascinated by the science and philosophical questions about the science. So I came out of philosophy of science where the concern is about really the relationship between inference and evidence, claims made and evidence offered. And then I started learning about the history of race science and gender and science. And I realized that there were many low-hanging fruit. There was great social urgency around those questions. And as I put them together, I realized that I needed a toolkit bigger than philosophy of science. I needed the social dimensions of science. I needed the history of science. And I needed to understand the science really, really well in order to engage it on all cylinders. And so I found history of science a, a very embracing field for exploring science in all of its dimensions. Right. So I know you studied philosophy in your undergrad and you got your PhD in modern thought and literature at Stanford. So to what extent were you already narrowing in on this research and professional focus in the history of science? Yeah, I think I caught the bug as an undergraduate and I caught it by taking classes between history of science, philosophy of science and gender studies. And so when I got to graduate school, I knew I wanted to work in that realm. I thought I would do something having to do with the brain, but I happened to go to graduate school at a site, Stanford, um, that was a major arm of the genome project which were reaching their most flourishing moment when I was in graduate school. And I just began to hook into communities of scientists and critical scholars who were engaging with their work in the Bay Area and turned toward the genome and uh, saw an opening for really looking at how sex and sex differences were being articulated and in some way re-articulated in the language of, of genomics. And so I hopped right on that. And over, I guess, the last 20 years, I have been deeply engaged across many areas of biomedicine, but with a focus on the elite biomedical sciences, molecular biology, and genetics in particular, looking at how sex and gender are operationalized and understood implicitly sometimes in the research in these fields. And I haven't gotten bored of it yet. Yeah, I saw that you had a book coming out soon that is related to this research area in epigenetics as it applies to maternal health. That book is called The Maternal Imprint, The Contested Science of Maternal Fetal Effects. So I was really struck by your work regarding and dismantling the blame placed on pregnant mothers for potential epigenetic factors that could affect their children. Because even in my recent college courses, I've learned about these dangers of these epigenetic and intrauterine effects. So these are things that I'm still learning. And yet, reading about your work, I see in many ways they're flawed. So 
first, would you mind defining for us some of these maternal fetal effects? Sure. So the book is about a very specific lineage of thinking about the maternal intrauterine body and the imprint left by gestating in a particular maternal body. It's a specific set of ideas about the long reach of the womb, both for an individual and perhaps intergenerationally for a lineage. You landed on it exactly. Epigenetics is one of the arenas where these ideas are being newly promulgated in the language of elite biomedicine. And I'm fascinated by such claims, I think, as we all are, having all been gestated at one point and wondering about our origins and, um, and indeed the kinds of effects on our development and outcomes that might come from the particular histories that we have. It's a fascinating area of science. It's also an area where scientific claims, I think, run quite far ahead of the actual evidence for those claims in human populations. So this phenomenon, where certain claims become exceptionally hyped, exceptionally intelligible in a certain genre of writing and thinking about parenthood and advice to mothers and risk and all of the uncertainty surrounding parenthood, I was drawn to that. And so I call this the crypticity of maternal effects. And I deeply analyzed the epigenetic science and the new field of developmental origins of health and disease in the book. But I really begin at the end of the 19th century. So as a historian, I immediately recognize that there is a long history of these sorts of ideas. They're not new at all, and they have ebbed and flowed. And that in the genetic age, so roughly from the late 19th century to the present, these ideas are particularly valence. They're entangled with a set of claims about what genes can explain, whether we have a blueprint for life or whether that can be modified by certain kinds of exposures. So it was right in my wheelhouse as a gender studies scholar and as a historian of genetics and the set of contestations around the body as either genetically determined or as more of a biosocial creation of its context. And so the book explores all of these themes walking through formative moments in the science of maternal effects, as well as its social ramifications. Right. So can you speak a little bit more about how exactly these messages are still being broadcasted in scientific and non-scientific spheres? And why might these messages still be so compelling? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that anytime that you have a set of claims that are about harm to a fetus or harm to an infant. Those claims are especially emotionally and politically charged and almost overwhelming, overdetermining. So we live in an environment in which risk to a fetus is something that should be prevented at all costs. No risk is acceptable in that context. And in fact, the social science evidence shows that women have greatly internalized this idea, more so than in any other era, that you should be looking to science and medicine and crafting your pregnancy in relation to its prescriptions. The thing is, these prescriptions are based on very unstable and minimal evidence. 
And it's that gap. It's a very productive, speculative gap between these things that fascinates me, as I said before. And so I think it is certainly the a, a set of discourses around fetal harm on the one hand and parents' desire to optimize their offspring due to a variety of social pressures. And the increasing idea of medicine as a mode of optimization of one's reproductive life. So these are coming together anew. We're also in an interesting moment. I've called this the post-genomic moment, where we're moving beyond the idea of the body as simply a printout of the genes. And there's a lot more embracing of environmental influences on development, a lot more interest in the social context of development and how that gets under the skin. And in some ways, this is very welcome as a corrective to a long period of gene centrism. And on the other hand, it's becoming a new realm in which to articulate differences between people, differences in life potential, and to medicalize this practice of optimization of outcomes. I think all of those things are part of the trend here. It's long been the case that mothers have been a target of medical advice. So it's almost as if mothers are idealized as beneficent and natural caregivers. And at the same time, in deep tension with this, there's the idea that they actually don't know what to do and that they are highly inadequate in realizing those aims and they need expert advice <laughs> to realize the most optimal future citizens. So there are many themes coming together that sustain these discourses of mother blame. So you'll get headlines like that extra potato chip could lead to an obese offspring, right? <laughs> or ideas that women exercising during pregnancy prime their children to later be good exercisers. And these resonate so strongly with a long history of ideas that whatever the mother does directly imprints on her gestating fetus. Very simplistic ideas about the mother as a shaper of the fetus are flourishing in this renewed interest in the molecular biology of early development. How do you propose that we address this issue? Who is responsible for perhaps combating this messaging? It's challenging because these fields, as some of my work shows, have a long history of gathering data and doing research in the well-trod tracks of looking at maternal and fetal diets. And so it's very hard to start a new frame that would perhaps include other developmental influences, including the co-parent and other caretakers and a much more enriched structural set of influences on early development because these are data-hungry fields and they have histories of citation. And so you get cycles of reinforcement of what looks like a tractable question. It is partly due to how the questions were framed at the beginning. It is also due to this cycle of hype, which I was just describing, the intense interest around these kinds of claims, which are rapidly translated into direct medical advice to pregnant women. So this is deeply, deeply embedded in the field. I think scientists certainly do need to be conscientious, whether they intend it or not, that this is the receptive environment that 
the work is going to go into and that there is a history that we can learn from of how these sorts of claims have been used to construct particular ideals of motherhood and fatherhood that limit human flourishing in certain ways and that make the science seem more certain than it is and that present an overwhelming picture of risks to one's fetus that can be paralyzing and ultimately a form of coercion in terms of directing people's behavior. So I do hope that my work will communicate with scientists in this field who are doing this research and are, I have found, very interested in how to understand the reception of their work, yet less interested in how this might go right back to the very framing, the very questions that are asked in the field. So it is an invitation to dialogue, and my work characteristically engages deeply with the science, reads the primary literature, and brings a set of analytics to it to try to understand how these biases, if you will, do function at multiple levels from research design all the way to the communication and dissemination of results. Yeah, that is so interesting. Thank you so much. When, when can we expect the book to be published? I'm eager to read it. I think it'll be out in October. Great. I can't wait. Just when we're back to post-pandemic partying. Exactly. So you're also a director of the Gender Sci Lab, which studies the interplay between sex, gender, and the biological sciences. What inspired you to found the Gender Sci Lab? Oh, it's, it's, I'm sort of creating my own academic Shangri-La. As I've already explained, I'm an interdisciplinary scholar. I like to engage with scientists. I am interested in cultivating a future generation of students across the disciplines who have the experience of doing collaborative critical feminist science studies work. So this this lab is a space where historians of science, philosophers of science, sociologists, psychologists work right alongside evolutionary biologists, public health scholars, molecular biologists, brain scientists, and others to create new knowledge and to interrogate bias and hype in the sciences of sex differences. We are constantly looking at emerging ideas and bringing these multiple frameworks into play to think about not just the empirical claims made, but the entire structure of power and knowledge that surrounds the very possibility of the production of the, this form of knowledge. And we write together and we put knowledge out into the world in various forms, peer-reviewed academic papers, and also on our blog. And we do also a lot of teaching and engaging with uh, students and people in the community. So this is, I think, to me, a vision of interdisciplinary or even anti-disciplinary work. And it allows us to be positioned in a nimble way to engage with emerging sciences and to produce what I call knowledge that matters, to really be responsive and bring the resources that are needed for any particular problematic that we're looking at. So I saw that you're working on a COVID-19 data tracker, which monitors coronavirus data by gender and sex. Are you finding any important or surprising trends with that tool? Yes. So when COVID came down, we had to really retool and we immediately saw that some of the early claims 
were sex difference claims that men were in aggregate dying at much higher rates than were women. We realized that this was one place where we could be useful. We analyze these kinds of claims all the time. So we decided to create a tracker for U.S. states, which immediately showed, and this has only been proven more starkly over time. We've been tracking every Monday morning since April, state-level sex difference outcomes, sex disparities, really, in COVID-19. And what our data show is significant heterogeneity in the sex disparity. In some places, there's an extreme sex bias where men are faring much worse than women. And in some places, men and women are faring virtually identically. And in some places, women are faring worse. Also, over time, there's been a huge shift in the sex disparity. So if you look at New York State, for example, in the first months of the pandemic, they had one of the worst sex disparities in the world, actually. It was like two to one. But since that first surge of the pandemic, it's been virtually one to one. So that situation has resolved. And so interpreting those patterns is what we're doing now, working with our tracker data and other data we've been able to pull. We've been able to be an important voice in the conversation around sex difference claims. We have argued against an immediate recourse to biological factors. We think that just doesn't fit the patterns that we observe. We have another set of data that is on race and sex interactions, which shows similarly that the degree of the sex disparity varies across social groups racially and ethnically defined. All of this tells us that there is a large role for social factors in producing this disparity where the disparity exists. And that is, we think that things like occupation, uh, not having the resources to socially distance and pre-existing conditions, which are differentially distributed across men and women, play a large role in any sex disparities that have been seen. It doesn't mean they're not important. It doesn't mean they're not real, but it helps us locate the causes of that vulnerability. And what we're seeing with different social groups shows us that it isn't that all men and all women are faring in a certain way. There's substantial diversity within. So white men in many places are doing very well, almost equal to white women, but it's a subset of men who are really driving these terrible, terrible outcomes. Usually we're looking at black men and Hispanic men in the US who have rates of death many times higher than that of other men. When we're able to understand that heterogeneity, instead of generalizations of all men versus all women, I think we're in a stronger place. So we're really proud of the work we've been able to do there. And it's brought us as a lab a lot more into conversation with the field of public health. And we're continuing to crunch the data and we're continuing to track going forward. Yeah, that's so interesting. I've been seeing all the headlines over the over the last year. It's definitely a predominant form of thinking immediately turning to these generalizations I've I've seen. So I'm going to pivot a little bit toward your role as a professor now, because, you know, as a student, that very much interests me. You teach a wide variety of courses related to gender studies, science, history of science, research methods, and all the intersections between those fields. What has been the most or one of the most interesting or rewarding courses that you have taught at Harvard? And why is that? Well, I developed a general education class on gender and science a few years ago. It was such an epic effort. 
because this is an enormous field of scholarship. Many people, when they think of gender in science, which is really my primary area of expertise, think only of women in science. They think it's going to be a course on the history of women in science and their contributions. And in fact, many students are looking for that. A large number of the students who showed up for the first offering of that were women in science uh, who wanted frameworks for thinking about their life and their, their, their vision for themselves. But gender and science is so much bigger than that. We talk about gender and technoscience and robots and algorithms. And we talk about gender and scientific knowledge, very much what we were just talking about. So the way in which particular ideas about sex and sex differences influence biomedicine and its practices. And so I, it was incredibly exciting to develop the course. And the first offering was so gratifying. It was like I was, I, they just, the students just carried me along. They, they would clap at the end of lecture. And I knew it wasn't me. I knew it was them that they just needed this. It felt like they were sponges and there were lines of people who wanted to talk after class. And I was so moved by that experience. I haven't been able to teach the class in a couple of years, um, but I am going to offer it this fall. So I'm busily updating all my slides and getting ready for, for that experience. I'm so glad we're going to be back live because I'm a big performer. I like to I, I like to do a lot of antics in that class. And I really like to, like I just said, see the students' reactions, feel what they're feeling. And I've learned so much from the students. So one of the things in that class over time you know, just to give an example is the women uh, on the women in science question is students have demanded more diversity in the women who are represented as part of the history of women in science. And that is a challenge to our field. It's a challenge to me for sure. It's a challenge to our field and it's driving work in the field because I've got to go out there and find the resources and they are there. And I'm really grateful for the students pushing in that way. So it's, it's a course that's very much a live, evolving, and a very engaged class. So I love teaching that class. So that's an example. Yeah. So as I was preparing for today's episode, actually, I realized that I think I sat in on one of those lectures during oh the Oh my talks. God, what was that like? <laughs> yeah. So this was back in 2018. I was a senior in high school here for Harvard's Admitted Students Weekend, you know, you go to these weekends to get a feel for the campus and the student body, yeah. but then you also remember that you're like getting your education here. You should probably go to some classes. So, <laughs> so that. I saw this one and it, you know, it sparked my interest. I remember loving it. I had no idea there was a history of science department. I didn't know anything about the history of science. I thought I was going to do environmental science here. I don't know. This is all to say maybe you planted that first seed in my future academic path. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Lucy, I'm so glad our paths crossed and, and maybe you can take that class. I know, I'll look fall, out for it next so... semester. The final question that I'll ask is if I am a student in any one of your classes, not necessarily this, this class next fall, what do you hope I can leave the semester having learned? What can I take away? Wow. Well, I hope that you have a new way of thinking about science as an unwieldy um, set of practices that are social in nature and that require many analytics, that requires many analytics to 
fully understand. So I hope to turn your head toward an embrace of interdisciplinarity and of plurality. And I certainly hope that you would feel that you have a, a relationship with me, that we're in conversation rather than that it had been a transfer of knowledge. And so I tend to frame my teaching as a series of questions that are challenging, that don't have answers really, but are there to make you think. And I tend to make an argument in the course that is, is there for you to engage with, it's for you to check your own intuitions against. And so I would hope you would leave still thinking and still, still ruminating and still wondering about a question that had come up and wanting to continue to explore throughout your life the, those set of questions. That's great. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you today. Um, My pleasure. You know, I hope we continue these conversations. I know they're very interesting to me, and I, I hope our audience will, will find the same. Likewise. Thanks, Lucy. And that's it. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Synthesis Spotlight. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Follow us on Instagram at Synthesis Journal. And keep an eye out for the upcoming Synthesis publication on our website. Until next time, this was Synthesis Spotlight.